You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. I would say there are a couple of two or three evolutions that I imagine happening, and this was happening pre-COVID. Number one, a lot of tech companies got on the quote-unquote smart cities bandwagon because it was exciting, because research reports were written about it, because there were interesting pilot opportunities. But they found, number one, that was not going to be a space where they could thrive because they were more software-oriented and a lot of smart cities projects required integration between operational technology, hardware, and software. And that was just not going to be an investment they could make. I think so. So that'll continue. I think there there were a lot of companies that developed smart cities practices that they sort of shelved pre-COVID that I don't think will reemerge after that. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. The pandemic has accelerated digital transformation in state and local government as organizations really quickly pivoted to stand up a remote work infrastructure and enhanced digital service delivery. However, as they transition into a post-pandemic world, governments need to focus on purposeful digital transformation to continue their modernization journey. And purposeful digital transformation involves using digital technology to create strategic goals that drive better business outcomes in state and local government This is often delivering constituent services more efficiently and cost-effectively. Far too often, digital transformation has centered around siloed IT projects, but the pandemic has taught state and local governments a valuable lesson about the need for enterprise-wide transformation. The Center for Digital Government recently surveyed leaders across all levels of government to assess the role and impact of purposeful digital transformation within these organizations and how they can accelerate modernization and maximize their often limited resources. And the survey highlighted four key best practices that can help state and local governments take their digital transformation to the next level. Number one is focus on ROI. Two, nurture a culture of innovation. Three, build bridges across agencies and departments. And four, leverage public-private partnerships. And our guest today was recently working on driving digital transformation at both the state and local level by leveraging these key pillars. And in our episode today, We're going to discuss some of these as well as how modernization can also be key to achieving digital equity for citizens. Yusuf Khalad is the former head of smart cities for the state of New York, and before that was the founding program director for NYCX, which is a group within the New York City government that works to pilot emerging technologies and digital solutions for the city's connectivity, security, transportation, and environmental issues. Welcome to the show, Yusuf. Thanks for joining us today, buddy. Thank you so much, Brian. Really excited to chat with you. I'm excited to have this conversation with you because based on your diverse background, I'm sure it's exposed you to a lot of different projects during your government tenure. What types of things were you working on and what have you been up to since you left government? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and again, really excited to be on the podcast. I've listened to a ton of episodes. But yeah, my, my uh, tenure in government, my sort of chapter in government really started close to four years ago when I had the great honor of joining the mayor's office and in particular, the, the new CTO's office uh, in New York City. Um, I, you know, I, I had amazing conversations with 
some of the early leadership of that office, uh, Jeremy Goldberg, uh, Josh Breitbart, and, and Miguel Gamino, who had been the new CTO, uh, coming to New York City from San Francisco. And they had this really exciting idea of, of starting a new emerging technology program uh, at the city uh, coined NYCX, right? A, a play off of Google X or some of the other exciting forward thinking programs in the, in the public and private sector. Um, the very first thing that I did actually with the city though was not uh, necessarily focused on, uh, on, on NYCX. I actually um, initially was hired on to support the city's um, National Science Foundation kind of competition proposal to establish um, one of four uh, advanced wireless test beds around the country right here in New York City. Uh, the city was to receive, if it won that grant, $23 million to basically uh, understand how new wireless technologies would, would reshape urban environments. And so um, was able to work uh, on that on that proposal team and kind of bring folks together, and we were able to to bring in twenty three million dollars to the city uh, to establish a wireless test bed right here in Harlem. Um, and the idea was again to make uh, the city a place where where we could be on the cutting edge of wireless technology. Um, I then moved on to focus strictly on on building out the NYCX program, and in particular the 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 moonshot program we were, we were developing, the idea there was how do we help uh, city agencies pilot uh, breakthrough technologies for some of the challenges that they face? Uh, and how do we do it in a manner that is safe, but that's also equitable and that makes New York City more attractive for startups to, to come and not just to, to kind of found their operations, but also to specifically look at uh, you know, working with government either formally or informally. So that was super exciting. And, and so I led that program for two years. I then shifted over uh, in the middle of 2019 uh, to the governor's office in New York State, um, which was similar in some ways, but actually super different. Um, I worked on building out the, the state's first smart cities program. It was called the Smart Cities Innovation Partnership. The idea was to take the work that we did in New York City through NYCX and actually uh, build it out across the state. So how do we identify different urban, suburban, even rural environments in the state where the mayor and, uh, and local government were interested uh, in essentially becoming a smart city and, and building out a platform where they could engage with startups. So we funded non-pilot uh, nine pilots across seven cities that really sought to to address public problems through emerging tech so some of them were focused on testing out drone technologies with a focus on uh on you know kind of monitoring um uh algae bloom which was a, a big issue in a couple of different communities new york state has a 50 mile uh a drone corridor uh, for testing. We also looked at uh, emergency medicine triaging, right, at a time when folks necessarily were not necessarily, um, you know, encouraged to come into uh, the emergency room, right, at the height of COVID. And so how do we treat them remotely? We looked at monitoring uh, vacant buildings in certain uh, cities. So we did a bunch of different things through that program. I then also worked on government operations, supporting uh, um, commissioners in a couple of different agencies on overall strategy, on budget, 
on recruiting, on, on legislative priorities. Uh, and then uh, and then COVID response. So COVID hit probably five months into my ten- tenure at the state. And so from then on, it was, you know, how do we use every technology resource at our disposal to um, to support the state's response? You mentioned emerging technology a fair amount in there, and it's something that is seemingly counterintuitive often when you're talking about government innovation and bringing on some of these emerging tech. Do you ever look at some of the programs within, say, the federal government? And we, you and I were just discussing uh, my conversation with with Aiden over at TTS, and I know I spoke with Hannah Hunt over at the, the Army Software Factory. Very similar type of programs that are looking to bring emerging tech to the fore to support their government stakeholders. Do you ever look at those programs as models when you were looking to shape out NYCX? Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, all credit goes to my, my old boss and good friend, Jeremy Goldberg on this, you know, at the city, we actually looked at a couple of different models, both at the local and, and federal level. So everything from TTS to the defense digital service to USDS to some of the kind of, you know, DARPA like research uh, uh, programs that exist where you, you know, you basically bring in super talented uh, scientists and, and you, you know, connect them to civil servants and say, Hey, you know, how can you bring to bear your expertise, your research, uh, your experience, right. To this issue that we're facing. Um, some of the local models that we looked at that were super exciting and, and that originated on the West coast were, you know, the startup in residence program in, in San Francisco was kind of a, a key model. Um, so there were a ton of different approaches that we saw across the country. I think the challenge for us was what's going to be different about New York City, number one. Um, what was going to be attractive about a program in New York City versus anywhere else? And then number two, you know, how do we run it in a manner that stays true to our local municipal code, to our procurement guidelines, to the very specific context and time that New York City found itself in and you know, 2016, 2017. So, uh, you know, as an example, uh, this was a time in New York City when, um, you know, it, it was a bit behind the kind of uh, Silicon Valley, you know, uh, tech lash that had begun to happen on the West Coast, but it was just on the cusp of that. So Uber had had uh, a, a big uh, challenge with the city or, or a big confrontation with the city around how, ma- how many vehicles it could have on the road around, you know, what types of checks and balances needed to exist from a regulatory approval standpoint. Airbnb was similarly at a place where, um, uh, you know, it was battling the city around, you know, what a legal Airbnb should be versus, you know, what restrictions might exist. There were a ton of discussions being had around drones and around making drones more commercially and even personally accessible uh, in the city. So this was also a time when we really needed to be really sensitive to what was happening in the tech community in the city and, and how we could make and build a tech ecosystem and a tech engagement platform that still you know, centered community concerns, right? And ensured that New York City continued to be, you know, its own unique place relative to, for instance, a, a San Francisco. It's interesting having this conversation with you right now because I've seen 
the evolution of New York City as a digital hub over the past couple of years. And I would have to imagine that this program has certainly supported what that evolution looked like because it really has become a little bit of a different Silicon Valley-esque feel, I think, as of late. Yeah. I, you know, I think it would be an overstatement to say that, that you know, our program was you know, the, the driver of all this work, right? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, one thing I learned in government was like, be humble as much as possible because, you know, you're either surrounded by folks who've been doing this for 20, 30 years, um, or, you know, you, you get humbled in, in public work. But I think, yes, I think the program was super useful uh, at a time when probably New York City was going to head down one of two different paths, Right. It was either going to say, we we just want to be San Francisco, right? And we're just going to be a bigger San Francisco and we're going to, you know, kind of try to outmatch it from a, you know, venture capital investment perspective. And we're going to see how many different uh, startup engagement and digital service teams we can build in government and all that sort of stuff. Um, or we're going to take a different approach, which is um, let's do... Uh, tech in service of people. Let's be um, opportunistic and selective with the types of engagements we take on. And let's also center kind of the New York City context. So as an example, you know, New York City is uh, the densest, if not one of the densest cities in the country, right? So one of the challenges that we often faced was how do we take public space that is so limited and make sure that number one, we allocate it appropriately for the highest value public uses. And number two, how do we use it in a manner that um, that allows it to be multi-purpose, right? That allows it to uh, be used for private purposes, for public purposes, for you know the most local community purposes, and then maybe also open it up for for experimentation. So that was a very specific New York City challenge that that we thought about, right? Another one was. Um, how do we support connectivity in a city that, uh, you know, I guess similar to San Francisco was was very much uh, a, a place where there was a tale of two cities where, you know, you could move into an apartment in Manhattan and have maybe two or three different connectivity options that were relatively affordable. You could also move into an apartment, you know, way out in the Bronx or, or way out in Queens and maybe have one uh, broadband option that was $80, $90, right? And that was inaccessible to your family. So those were some of the considerations we really cared a ton about the start of the program. The other thing that I would say broadly about the New York City tech community that was really exciting and really cool, there were a lot more um, uh, both purpose-driven startups that we came across and also startups that almost had practical like a, a practical focus that they were looking at. So, uh, you know, a ton of startups that were in the fintech space that were all about how do we simplify payments? How do we simplify and make financial services more accessible, right? Health tech startups that were all about uh, democratizing and opening up, you know, mental health resources. Um, so there was a practicality to the companies that were New York City born and bred that honestly made it far easier to to collaborate. It feels like the it, when you look back at maybe the the tech bubble of the early 2000s um that ended up exploding it feels like there was just a technology focused during that during that era. How can I just make things easier for people or more convenient? And you're absolutely right. I think of late 
there's definitely much more of a a morality around some of the some of the the tech startups that are out there and in the emerging technologies that are coming to bear that we're seeing a lot of governments leverage in, in support of of some of the same issues like digital equity and other things like you mentioned. So I, I I couldn't agree with you more. And you mentioned when you when COVID hit, you were five months into your tenure, I believe, with uh, New York State. Um, working as uh, the smart city director there. What did it look like for you when COVID hit? What what were some of the challenges that that you faced on the programs that you were looking to deploy? Yeah, yeah. And it is so nice to, you know, be speaking with you in the in the middle of summer twenty twenty one, just at a completely different place than than March twenty twenty. Not not that we're out of the woods by any stretch, but it's just a an immense blessing and a credit to public investment, right? That we have vaccines and, and life has resumed some sense of normalcy. Uh, so I was actually set to, it, it was early March and I was set to, um, I was in New York City. I was set to head back to Albany for three straight weeks um, of support on budget negotiations. Our budget uh, is set to pass if it's on time, April 1st of every single year. And the two or three weeks leading up to that deadline are, you know, the point at which all of the leg- the major legislative proposals, all of the budget allocations are hashed out and negotiated between the Department of Budget, the, the governor's office, uh, so the executive branch, and then the legislative branch. And so I'd book, you know, the next three weeks at, at uh, you know, some small, I forget if it was an Airbnb or a, or a, or a Holiday Inn. And I got a call from my boss, uh, you know, that like late that Friday. And he said, hey, no need for you to come back for this one. Uh, you know, plan to be remote for a few weeks. Uh, COVID's going to be going to be here for a while. Of course, that three weeks ended up being three months remote. And uh, and, and so that was, I think, a, a pretty strange and, and scary time. Um, in general, I think the initial focus immediately that weekend um, on our team was number one what are the what are the state's priorities given that covid is a far bigger challenge than originally anticipated and that so many parts of the economy and regular life were going to be shut down so what were the priorities number two um, how do we uh, think about beyond the public health crisis the operational crisis that that was ensuing in government. So it wasn't like government was going to have to stop doing all the activities that it was doing before COVID. It was just going to have to start doing them with um, very few uh, in-person functions happening and with strains occurring uh, to its its infrastructure because everything was remote. So um, we went right to work. Uh, You know, number one, we focused a ton on supporting our on-the-ground emergency operations centers, which had sprung up all around the, st- around the state. And the work was, um, you know, truthfully, very basic, you know, nuts and bolts, blocking and tackling. You know, did they need printers? Did they need Wi-Fi? What types of technical supplies did they need? We similarly had to resource the uh, testing centers that were popping up. First, I think there were three or four, and then that ballooned to, you know, 10 to 20 state-run testing centers. Um, Then we moved to launching um, a a novel program uh, called the the New York State uh, Tech SWAT program, which was all about um, 
basically pooling together all of the generous uh, areas of support that private sector uh, partners were looking to deploy in, in service of the public health crisis and, and putting a structure around it. So when Microsoft or Google or Startup A or Company B reached out and said, how can we help in New York State? We didn't have a, a clear program for that. But in the course of two to three days, we launched a program where we paired up these companies with very specific state teams that were working on a critical need at the moment. The, the, the deployments were either super, super directed. So it was, you know, can you give us two or three engineers to help with this issue? Um, or they were uh, more elongated and, and were more focused on, you know, a, a specific set of uh, digital or technical deliverables. So we worked with Microsoft very early on in the crisis on spinning up an online uh, COVID diagnostic platform that number one, helped New Yorkers uh, catalog their symptoms and then find testing locations. And then beyond that, um, schedule tests. And you know, if you think back to March, April, 2020, getting a test was super, super difficult for folks. So this was gonna be a, a really big deal for, for New Yorkers and remote parts of the state. We also worked on um, reinforcing existing uh, social service systems. So if you think about public benefits platforms, if you think about DMV, if you think about food access, these were really critical areas that had to scale up both in their capacity, how many users they could handle, how many transactions they could handle. And then we actually had to think about, okay, uh, which ones are breaking because they, you know, they, they weren't, uh, optimally designed, uh, you know, two, three, four years ago. Um, cybersecurity became a, a major, major focus because we were hearing from a lot of our counterparts and state and local government across the country that um, they were they were getting hit hard with uh, DDoS uh, attacks or, um, you know, more rampant phishing attacks or, or whatever it might be. Um, and then I think the final area that that we ended up um, finding that was really exciting, and that was a credit to the leadership in the state, was, you know, how do we move from defense to offense? So we did all this work, spinning up operations centers, spinning up testing, making sure that things like our unemployment benefits were being delivered in a timely manner. How do we go on offense and look for opportunities to reinvent government technology? So. Um, you know, we did a top to bottom review of our technical infrastructure and looked for ways to deploy very time sensitive CARES Act funding to that technical infrastructure. So how many different places can we employ online scheduling to? Can we do things like virtual hearings now on an ongoing basis? Can we replenish our, our supply of devices, right, in a manner that was, that was um, you know, that would serve us over the next five to 10 years? Remote access, can we support cities and counties to do remote access of, of data systems, e-signatures, and so on and so forth, right? So that was exciting because it showed that we were, um, we were at a place where we were, you know, to quote, um, you know, now a, a federal government, uh, you know, line of, of thinking that we were beginning to build back better. We were beginning to look ahead. So um, that was a, an amazing and, and really exciting time for, for me to be a part of state service. And, um, you know, I look back on it fondly. So once you settled into that role and, and COVID was, had kind of 
disrupted a few things. You you ultimately were the director of smart cities for the state. So what were some of the advances around smart cities that you were prioritizing within the state of New York? Yeah, yeah. So the the smart cities innovation partnership program that we we launched it, I think, first week of March, and then the, the shutdown kind of ensued immediately after. Um, the, the focus initially was let's find cities around the state where um, they have the, the physical assets, right, physical space, and they have the political leadership to actually, um, you know, build out um, a smart cities test bed where, where they can engage startups on, on critical public challenges. The focus immediately, not necessarily shifted, but I think um, was was redirected to look for, you know, applications that also incorporated like the, the changing landscape of COVID, right? If, if COVID kind of mm-hmm. began to move people's, uh, you know, government's operations in a different way. So we went from saying, you know, focus on cybersecurity, focus on drone technology, focus on transit to you know, in your grant applications, give us a sense for how COVID has shifted your your operations and, and why a technology like X, Y, or Z is more important now during COVID than, than, than before COVID. One of the critical areas that emerged that was really exciting, really essential, and had a deep equity component was remote medicine. So, um, Telemedicine, of course, kind of, you know, had, had a big moment at the start of COVID because, you know, you needed to begin, you know, visiting your doctor uh, online because you couldn't go in person. Remote medicine triage was this concept that said, well, if there are emergencies where someone might need some support um, and we're not sure whether that support is COVID related or not COVID related, how can we actually uh, support them before they come into the, the emergency room. So the city of Schenectady through this program, uh, piloted a program that basically allowed, uh, emergency medical personnel to actually come to someone's home before they, uh, came to the emergency room, have them connect with a a remote nurse or remote physician on their symptoms and decide basically whether that necessitated uh, an in-person emergency visit or not. And if it did necessitate that, whether it was COVID related or not. This was really critical at a time when hospitals were begging people if it was not COVID related, if it was not super, super serious to not come in person and imperil themselves and uh, and, and those around them. Uh, and so it was critical for, I think, diverting a lot of uh, in-person activity. Um, the other thing that I would share that feels a bit counterintuitive, but I think is, is pretty, pretty cool, um, is that, you know, when, when COVID hit, there were a lot of opportunities to accelerate, um, uh, advancements in, you know, kind of testing around the built environment, partially because there were just far fewer people out on the street and there were far fewer cars out on the street. So you could actually accelerate a lot, a lot of construction work uh, at that time, right? You could uh, begin to do retrofits, right? You could you could begin to do things that might have been more difficult, you know, pre-COVID because you know foot traffic and and transit and so on was at its peak. So we saw a lot of those applications as well. Folks that were interested in saying, you know, hey, we need to install 
you know, sensors on uh, these street corners to help us with, you know, measuring environmental uh, factors. Or, you know, we've had this Wi-Fi project, uh, you know, on hold for quite some time because digging up the ground was going to take a while. And, uh, you know, there was too much foot traffic. But, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to do this project because there isn't a lot of uh, traffic on our streets and because something like Wi-Fi is really, really essential for the communities in the neighboring, uh, you know, in the neighboring area. So those were some of the things that we saw pop up much more frequently. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how you see the evolution of smart cities happening and whether or not you think COVID is going to be a big piece of, of strategic kind of vision for folks that are in, in the type of role that you were in at the time, because I know during the pandemic, building resilience into an ecosystem was certainly something that was prioritized and COVID was a big catalyst, right? Is that something that you see through kind of into the future for smart cities? Or do you think it's going to go back to what some of the earlier priorities were pre-COVID? That's a really good question. And I probably would have had a different answer for you if um, there hadn't been um, you know, federal support coming into cities and states through the American Rescue Plan and, and potentially through the, the infrastructure bill that's being debated right now. And, and that seems to you know, be on its way to passage. I think July through December of 2020, when a lot of city and state coffers, uh, you know, and, and, and tax revenues were down anywhere between 25 to 50% year over year, there was a lot of fear among, uh, among uh, city and, and state government officials that there wasn't going to be help coming from the federal government. They had already potentially furloughed or laid off tons of staff, some of them critical staff like teachers and firefighters and, and, and emergency personnel. And so thinking about, you know, quote unquote, technology projects, smart cities, et cetera, was way, way down their list of, of priorities. Now, after aid started to be uh, delivered through, you know, the early days of, of the Biden administration and, and now into the summer, I think a lot of city and state officials have started to think, you know, okay, now that, you know, now that my coffers and my, my budget has been replenished somewhat, what are the areas that, you know, were priorities for me pre-COVID that I can begin to lean into again? Um, so, so that I think is a critical critical difference, you know, from a year ago, I would say there are a couple of, you know, two or three evolutions that I imagine happening. And this was happening pre COVID. Number one, a lot of tech companies got on the quote unquote, smart cities bandwagon, because it was exciting, because research reports were written about it, because there were uh, interesting pilot opportunities. But they found number one, that was not going to be a space where they could thrive, because, you know, they were more software oriented and a lot of smart cities projects required integration between operational technology, hardware, you know, and, and software. And that was just not going to be an investment they could make. I think so. So that'll continue. I think there, there were a lot of companies that developed smart cities practices that they sort of shelved pre COVID that I don't think will reemerge after that. I think the other area though, that, that will be, super critical and that we've already started to see a lot of excitement about is just connectivity. So, you know, a lot of residents during COVID began to find that 
you know, government can deliver really essential services to them without having to show up in an office somewhere to get that service. And um, I think there's an expectation going forward that maybe not all of those services are continuing to, to be delivered virtually, but a fair number could be, right? So can you schedule your visit to the DMV? Yes. Uh, can you do a remote hearing because, um, you know, physically you're not able to make it or because you might have a physical disability that doesn't allow you to, you know, get to a remote government office somewhere to, to you know, to meet with government officials? Yes. Can you uh, begin to, to access digital services, you know, through your phone instead of having to have a desktop? Yes, you should be able to do all those things. And government needs to set that expectation and meet that expectation. On the flip side of that, though, the final area that I think, you know, kind of wraps this all together is access to the internet. So, um, you know, a lot of companies that were in kind of the urban tech smart city space have started to figure out, you know, as a value add to the type of partnership I can have with government, you know, how can I help them solve for their connectivity challenges? How can I bring to bear a partnership with an internet service provider, hardware manufacturer, uh, digital training uh, organization to basically support them in getting their residents connected to the internet? And so we're seeing a lot of investment now, and, and a lot of that is thanks to investment from the Biden administration in number one, critical infrastructure, building out fiber in a lot of places. Number two, getting folks uh, devices that work and that meet them uh, where they are and that help them access the government services we mentioned before. Um, and then number three, reinforcing of, of uh, those networks, right, through you know, endpoint detection and monitoring through, you know, cyber hygiene trainings, et cetera, that allow people who are just getting connected online to do it safely. So those are some of the evolutions. The final evolution that I'll share, and, and this is just generally true for spaces that were previously ill-defined and are getting more defined. I think the, you know, the smart cities world is just like getting more practical. So rather than starting out with a cool gadget and saying, hey, let's talk about how I can you know, put this cool gadget across all of your telephone poles and light poles and building facades and so on. I think it's shifting more toward, all right, what is what is the critical problem you have? Is it congestion? Is it noise pollution? Is it uh, logistics and food distribution? Is it, you know, public safety data collection? What is that problem? And I can, you know, come up with a solution that solves that problem. That's where I think a lot of the space is headed. And I would argue that that's even outside of just smart cities. I think government in general has gotten more strategic with how they've they've brought technology to bear across their ecosystem. I usually compare IT modernization and digital transformation. And IT modernization to me is that technology for technology's sake. It's that cool gadget. It's that ripping that old system out and putting a new system in where the, the true spirit of digital transformation is being more practical, being more strategic and really seeking to get positive outcomes based on what the specific challenges are. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I would also say, um, you know, to the, to the point you shared on, you know, digital transformation. I mean, I think, you know, the early, <laughs> the early days of, of COVID, a lot of governments started to say, well, you know, can we, can we slap a new face on an aging kind of dying, you know, system? So, can we just redesign the front end of a website that still doesn't mm -hmm. work? 
and I think they, they started to feel the pain later on when, you know, the fancy new button that had been integrated into website X or website Y, when you clicked it, didn't go anywhere, right? Or, you know, you were, you were timing out every three or four seconds and you couldn't fulfill your transaction. So completely agree uh, with you on that, that um, a lot of this space is shifting toward, you know, problem definition, uh, you know, with a, with a technology agnostic sort of outcome. When I think they were confusing the user experience for a citizen experience, the way, like you said, the way it looks and feels. And if they modernize that, then they've created a completely different experience. And uh, I think Aiden said it best. It was, they really hyper-focus on service design, mm. figuring out what the process is and, and kind of transforming around that. So I think that's an important imperative. And where my brain went when you started talking about all these services you were looking to deploy in, in strategic ways is all the type, all the different types of data that you guys would have coming in. Do you guys build out a framework around what you would, could do with that data before you have it? Or do you wait until it comes in and say, oh, wow, we have this and this. Let's take a look at how we can leverage it for XYZ program. Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And in general, I would say you know, government is well served by taking the lead of the public se- of the private sector uh, across some problem areas and across others, it's better to kind of like carve its own leadership path. So, you know, for data minimization and, and data use standards, I think government is better served by kind of carving out a, its own path relative to the private sector. So from our vantage point for the smart cities projects that we look to, to scope out and fund across those seven communities I shared, you know, we had very strict guidance to the cities, especially if they were collecting things like biometrics, personally identifiable data, anything like that, that, that number one, they had to limit it as much as possible. And that if it was collected, it had to be very strictly tied to a business outcome and not just a business outcome, but a resident outcome, right? How is this going to serve the resident? And then also stipulate, how long that data would be would be kind of uh, stored and kept, um, and as far as I can tell, that was one of the kind of uh, only programs that that we came across in the smart city space that that specifically told uh, you know governments, local governments that were looking for funding, they had to stipulate those those requirements. I would say from the kind of digital services uh, side of things, you know, we often were looking to deploy new services that um, we're just going to solve a problem for residents and have a framework for some of the KPIs that we wanted to, to, to gather over time and, and kind of build upon them. So, you know, a good example is like, you know, when we were looking to um, simplify the, the process for uh, enrolling uh, in, you know, the unemployment insurance system and then certifying weekly that, that, you know, you still met the same criteria to receive weekly unemployment benefits. One of the most basic things we wanted to track was just conversion from page to page. And it, it's like a minor thing, right? But, you know, a lot of government applications of, of that type of upgrade would say, okay, I just want to know how many people started their application and, and how many were completed and how much money went out the door. And that's fine, but that's, you know, that's a very simplistic approach to a funnel challenge where, you know, if you've got nine different pages that folks need to click through, some of them might require a doc- document upload, upload. Some of them might require 
inputting a you know a nine or ten digit you know you know unique uh, identifier, it's helpful to know where people drop off, and which of those pages can be eliminated, redesigned, simplified, collapsed, so that you get more people through that funnel. And so those were some of the things that we tried to to put in place and to highlight. The other thing that we did that was that was really cool was um, we launched in partnership with Google.org. Um, a new application that was um, titled Find Services. Um, and the, the idea there was it's very difficult in government to build kind of, or in, in any realm, to build the master application, right? The, the, the app to kill all apps. But for government services, one of the things that you could do is potentially build a unified, simple, uh, mobily accessible front door to the most essential lifeline services that people need and that people found out or, 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 or you know, came, to the, um, came to the place where they needed far more during COVID than pre-COVID. So again, things like unemployment, food access, childcare, rental assistance, et cetera. How can you put those all in one place? And then through two, three, four very basic questions, help them understand what they qualify for and then send them off to kind of, you know, complete their application. So for that application, we, we also put together, you know, a, a very powerful data analytics dashboard that helped us have a very strong sense of what services people needed when, um, associations across services. So if you needed this service, did you also need these other two services? This was again, really useful data for, for making minor tweaks over time and having a sense of, uh, you know, uh, what was a resident's most essential priority that week or that day? It, now that you've been out of government for a few months, is there any type of challenge that you faced while you were in there that you are hopeful that government can can change or remediate? It, just general blockers of being able to be successful in your roles. I know we hear all the time that there's a fair amount of bureaucracy, the procurement challenges that happen within government, et cetera. Are, now that you've been out, are there things that you hope can change to drive innovation forward? Yeah, I think the challenges that you mentioned are well known. And so I won't necessarily dive into them. Procurement and bureaucracy are, are big ones. I would say, uh, especially in the, the operational technology and the, and the digital services, you know, IT world, it's, there's just major, major talent gaps. And um, especially in state government where the, the locus of power, right, the headquarters is often in a smaller, uh, you know, city uh, that is away from a major urban center. It can be really difficult to recruit enough talent uh, that, that, that I think, you know, wants to be in government, wants to contribute and keep them for a very long time. So how you do that is really difficult. I think nobody likes to talk about compensation in government, partially because in the United States, we have this sense that dates back to the, to the eighties with the Reagan administration, that you just have to starve government, right. And to invest in government, to invest in talent is, is a waste. But what I found is that the more you can competitively compensate people and also the more that you can set them up for actually a career path where they can excel, uh, the, the better off you're going to be as an organization. So that's something that I think is super, super critical. 
converse to that or 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 as a complement to that is how do you um use you know fellowship and leadership programs that exist so again the federal government has a million of these the, the presidential management fellows the presidential innovation fellows again these tours of duty programs right how do you still have those and invest time and effort in those to recruit great people but also make sure that the people that are recruited for those tours of duty, uh, number one, understand the culture of folks who've been in government a long time and can work with them and can approach them humbly uh, and collaborate with them versus potentially butt heads with them. And then number two, how do you actually convert a lot of those folks to build a longer term career in government? I think that's that's a really challenging thing to do. So again, it's really around uh, around talent. The other thing that I think is a challenge actually in the private sector as well is um, specifically getting leadership to understand the ROI on making critical investments in core infrastructure and in resilience and, and in cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is a super, super hard thing to communicate to senior executives across many industries and in particular in government because they are used to people coming to them with problems and with fear mongering and with, you know, if you don't do X, the worst thing in the world will happen, you know, and you'll get Y outcome. Um, and so they oftentimes I, I, I found struggle to suss out whether this risk that's presented to them is a real risk and whether that risk, um, you know, necessitates or, or makes worthwhile the pain to fix that risk, right? It could be acknowledging, uh, you know, uh, a vulnerability. It could be asking for more money from your local or state legislature to to invest dollars in cyber. It could be, like I mentioned before, increasing pay bans for cybersecurity professionals because retention is extremely poor across government for those functions. That's an area that I think is is a, a challenge that's not going to go away. Um, there's federal support to support uh, cities and states in, in making critical investments. There's also collaborative, you know, collaboration through fusion centers and so on that allow, uh, you know, local, state, federal government, uh, you know, um, homeland security to work together in one place. But I think a lot of governments are approaching it from the standpoint of, you know, you know, we'll deal with it, you know, on zero day, right? We'll deal with it when it happens. Um, and you sort of hope and pray that that it doesn't happen. But that's, I think, a critical area that um, I, I, I am desperate to see government leadership really lean into uh, because it's not it's going to only get more complex and more dire over time. I agree. I think talent is a huge priority. And even your your cybersecurity challenge you just you just illustrated, I think at the center of that is talent. It's the retention issue. It's it's pulling in some of the, the, the top uh, next generation talent that's out there that wants to that wants to come work for government. Frankly, they have a they, they have a, a calling and an innate calling, it seems like with this this generation to to do public service and being able to align and and support that in the right way with technology, with compensation, et cetera, is certainly something that government's gonna have to take a look at, I believe, if if, if they want to invest in really driving that innovation forward. Before before we finish up, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave the audience with today? Yeah, I think uh, I'll make the pitch. You know, if you're a technologist or a, a strong operations professional or just 
someone who cares about um, improving your community. I, I think government is a great place to to take a chance. Uh, and you know, when I entered government, I thought that you know this is going to be this is going to be it. I had a private sector chapter, and this is going to be my thirty year path. And you know, I found that for me, it it was going to be a stop along the way. And I'm hopeful to be back in government at some point in the future. And and that's okay too. But I think it's super, super valuable, especially for folks who are technologists to to take a chance on government uh, because the learning that you can do, the, the heights that you can reach in terms of making impact in your community is really, really critical. And, uh, and again, it doesn't have to be a 30-year investment. It could be a three, four, five-year investment. But, uh, but again, I think a tour of duty is, is an amazing opportunity for technologists to, to make an impact. So a pitch to you, whether it's federal, state, local, get your hands dirty, join the you know, U.S. digital response team, do something that puts you at the forefront of this because uh, your talents are needed. Awesome. Hey, Yusuf, thanks again for the time today, buddy. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittistray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.